Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Tanya Bruguera on censorship in the West and Hannah Arendt, Frank Auerbach at the Courtauld in London, and Indian art from Howard Hodgkin's collection at the Met. As she stages a non-stop reading of Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism at the Hamburger Bahnhof in Berlin, Tanya Bergera reflects on growing concerns about the censorship of artists in Germany in relation to the Israel-Hamas war. She also reflects on comments made by Ai Weiwei this week that censorship in the West was now exactly the same as in Mao's China. The Courtauld in London this week opened an exhibition of the monumental charcoal drawings made by Frank Auerbach in the 1950s and early 1960s, and I take a tour of the exhibition with the show's curator, Barnaby Wright. And this episode's work of the week is Mihil Dukt aims her arrow at the ring, a folio from the Hamzanama, or Story of Hamza. Made in India during the Mughal period, it's one of the works acquired by the British painter Howard Hodgkin in a lifetime of collecting Indian art. The collection is the subject of an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, which opened this week. Naveen Najat Haida, one of the co-curators of the show, tells us more. Don't forget, you can still buy the art newspaper's magazine The Year Ahead 2024, an authoritative guide to the world's must-see art exhibitions and museum openings, many of which were discussed on our podcast from the 12th of January. Get a print and digital subscription to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com before the 15th of this month to receive a copy of The Year Ahead with your next printed issue. Or you can buy the magazine on its own on the website for just £9.99 or $13.69. Do also subscribe to this podcast and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, the latest episode of which which is an interview with Stanley Whitney, wherever you're listening. Please also leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, on Wednesday, the Hamburger Bahnhof in Berlin began staging the European premiere of a work by the Cuban artist Tanya Bruguera called Where Your Ideas Become Civic Actions, 100 Hours Reading the Origins of Totalitarianism. It's a 100-hour reading of Hannah Arendt's magnum opus Elements and Origins of Totalitarianism with readers including artists, academics, activists and visitors to the gallery, ending at 11pm Berlin time on Sunday night. When Bruguera originally performed the work in Cuba in 2015, it led to her improvement imprisonment by the Cuban authorities. The performance is being staged at a moment of increasing tension and concern in the German art world about censorship in relation to the Israel-Hamas war. Artists and curators who've shown support for the Palestinian people and called for ceasefires and a free Palestine in the wake of Israel's devastating response to the Hamas atrocities of the 7th of October have had exhibitions cancelled or delayed. Perhaps most infamously, as we reported on this podcast last November, a member of the Finding Committee for the next Artistic Director of Documenta, the poet Ranjit Hoskate resigned after being accused of anti-Semitism, which he strenuously denied, prompting the remaining members' departure in solidarity. At the end of last month, Johanna Tagada Hofbeck, a French-born and British-based artist, took to Instagram to report the latest instance of a German museum cancelling an exhibition in response to pro-Palestinian sentiment expressed by an artist. In recent months, the Strike Germany movement has called for international cultural workers to strike from German cultural institutions in a call to refuse what the movement calls German cultural institutions used of McCarthyist policies that suppress freedom of expression, specifically expressions of solidarity with Palestine. I spoke to Tanya Bergera about whether the meaning of her project has changed in relation to the events of recent months. Tanya, to begin with, tell us about the circumstances in which you first made this work in 2015 in Havana, because it's a recreation of that work, but, but it's important to know, I think, why you did it in the first place. The original circumstances were 
that my house was surrounded by police. I was on the house arrest. I have had at that point in 2015 few dozens of, of interrogation sessions. By now it's more than 300, so I don't count anymore. But And then it was also the Havana Biennial, during the Havana Biennial. And in a way, with this piece, I created what I call Art for the Not Yet, which is actually creating art that doesn't react to power, but try to imagine what power is going to do and react or, or make them react to what you do right. when you you know bypass that, that they're planning. So in this case, I even use a self-surveillance situation where I recorded myself and the people who were there the whole time. And it actually worked because they were accusing me later falsely, as they normally do, to go to somebody else's exhibition and make a scandal and make it trouble. And I said, I'm sorry, I have my surveillance tapes, so you can't accuse me of that because I was in my house at that time. So, yeah, it was a circumstance where repression to artists in Cuba was less than now. Now we have artists in prison. But it was the beginning of trying to silence once again, because this is a cyclical situation in Cuba, once again the people that they were uncomfortable with because what they were saying and the art they were doing. And I want to thank all the people who came and participated in that time because it was a big statement to to break those lines and enter the house. And unfortunately, now we have been for a year, almost a year and a half, trying to set this piece in Berlin. And unfortunately, the circumstances in which the piece is being shown, I don't want to compare, but they are very close, let's say, or have too many coincidences with the kind of uh, self-censorship, fear, a state determining what is right, what is wrong to say. And this is unfortunate, but it is important, I feel, now to try to address it. Right. So in other words, this piece has been programmed in order to react to the current circumstances in Germany in relation to... It coincided. We didn't really? program oh. it. Yeah, it was by chance, but it is not a surprise because people in power are constantly trying to suppress people who criticize them or to challenge what they are doing, even if it's wrong. Right. And obviously there's, there's a number of events that have happened that might lead you to, to reach that conclusion. Mm-hmm. One of the most important is documentary, of course, and you took part in the last documentary where there was an, obviously an enormous amount of controversy around that. Since then, there's been this whole incident with the finding committee resigning in response to their perception that there was an, an active censorship of what they were doing. Candy Sprite's exhibition being cancelled and so on. So it, there's, there's a hell of a lot of stuff going on. I mean, there are the names that everybody knows, like Candice or, or others, or, for example, Laurie Anderson, who just yes. uh, didn't join this job that she was offered. But there are a lot of other artists who are less known, and precisely because of that, it's more easy to be disinvited or cancelled and so on. My personal opinion is that we are living the situation we live now in Germany, because we didn't deal with it in Documenta. Right. I feel that all of us, quote to quote from the Global South, came with our problems and our solutions to our problems to show and to share in a very generous way. And the Germans had the opportunity to bring their own 
problems in a painful way and think together what solution we can find. And it's interesting how countries in the so-called centers of power, they don't see how they can learn from people in the global south. They always think they have the solution. They always think their solution is the best one and the right one. Well, maybe now that there are a lot of censorship here and cancellations in Berlin and Germany, and people are being questioned for their political belief and so on, maybe they should look at other places where this happened before and see what the strategies the artists had or what is coming on after this, because I think this is a beginning. You're not the first person to draw attention to that, actually, because actually another artist said to me the other day that the censorship is disproportionately affecting black and brown people and artists of colour and artists from the global south. So... Would you say it's a latter-day form of colonialism then? It is colonialism, it's discrimination, it is racism, it is complex of superiority, all of that. That's really interesting. And of course, therefore, to be speaking the words written down by Hannah Arendt at this moment becomes extremely powerful. There's one bit in The Origins of Totalitarian where she talks about the danger of intellectual, spiritual or artistic initiative to totalitarian powers and what you're seeing around you at the moment is how artists are being clamped down upon so does it seem incredibly prescient and powerful to you to be doing this now yeah i mean it will depend on people's intervention in it because as an artist what i do is to create conditions by which things could happen. I mean, there is no good or bad outcome of the piece. Whatever happened will be almost like instantaneous image of what is happening now and here. So there is no good or right, right or wrong. I mean, I hope, especially in moments where institutions have been pressured and artists have been cancelled, I hope they can come and have a space to talk and to talk to power because people will be listening. So I think that's the invitation. And we did an open call so anybody can come and the museum put a code of conduct where no hate or call for violence is going to be accepted, but there is a respect for political opinion and is a respect for differences, basically. Right. And in terms of the people that are are doing the readings, to what extent is the selection entirely from the open calls or people that you've invited yourself? We wanted, especially a year and a half ago, when we thought nobody will feel that this work will mean anything, we wanted to invite and we did a kind of an open call or general invitation to a lot of academics And some of them say yes, and they are part of it today. Some wanted to be, but they could. They were in the city, whatever. So we have these experts, not only Hannah Arendt itself, but also in the themes Hannah Arendt is addressing in this book. The rest is open call. I personally spoke with some activists, because for me it's important that that voice at least is heard at some moment. So I think basically the rest is just... We don't know who people are. We have never asked anyone what they're going to talk about. And there is the option for conversation. There is also the option for the audience to challenge what people are saying or to support it. We'll see how it goes. But the faith is that art can open spaces where difficult conversations can take place. 
I wonder if you have encountered or if the institution has encountered any resistance to this event from the authorities. I have uh, to, you know, to disclose it completely. I know that uh, yesterday there was a, a person on Instagram who, you know, who targeted me asking why I am uh, doing this in a time of all of this is happening and where all the people are striking and so on. And also was saying, oh, you say you, you made a boycott to the Havana Biennial last time. Uh, is that the same? I don't think it's the same because when we decided to put a boycott to the Havana Biennial, two things were very different. First of all, the world didn't know what was happening in Cuba. So the call to the boycott was a way to explain people outside what was happening. So it was a resource for educating the people who are outside. In the case of Germany, everybody knows what is happening. Secondly, we had almost 13 artists in prison at the time. And we have more than a thousand people who were invisible to the world in prison. So we were calling to not whitewash this image by the government. And it also was a government doing this. Here we are saying, and which is very important as well, but we're talking about cancellation, censorship, and so on, of exhibitions. Nobody has been in prison so far. Like, if somebody goes to prison between now and the performance, I will not do the performance. Like, it's a different environment, you know? Like, it's a different resource you have to use to, to push. And it is important to test. For me, and my work has always been about testing power system. I want to test. Let's see what happens. Let's see what are they willing to hear, what are they willing to endure, what kind of conversation they are willing to have. Because in Documenta, I was extremely frustrated. I was extremely frustrated because I said, why can we not see it? Like all the work of the artists are showing moments of vulnerability, conversation, solidarity. Why cannot we do this collectively for the documenta itself. So I think this is for me a little different, but I want to test it. Maybe maybe it goes wrong. I mean, I don't have the truth. Maybe this effort is not good enough. Maybe with this project, we cannot achieve anything. I know that you signed the letter that was published in Art Forum that ended with David Velasco lost his job, the then editor of Art Forum. One of the objections to that letter was that there wasn't sufficient acknowledgement of Hamas's atrocities in the letter in the first instance. It was added. It was added, exactly. But there will no doubt be people that will say there's not sufficient acknowledgement in the art world, in many corners of the art world, of those atrocities today, and that there is overwhelming support for Palestine and for the Palestinian people, but no acknowledgement of what happened on October the 7th. Mm. How would you respond to that? I mean, I'm of course against the Hamas attack. I am against any war. I am against the disproportionate response of Israel. But I also think we cannot start a war about who's more victim than the other. This is a problem. We cannot compete about who's more victim. No human has the right to kill another person. And it is the responsibility of people in government to sit down with the other government and find out what is the solution. You made a piece called Untitled Palestine in 2010, didn't you? Wow, you did your research, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was significant in terms of what you just said then, because it was in a way a proposal for a future. Tell me more about that. Yeah, no, the piece was part of a series where I was trying to, to convey that sometimes we imagine the place without living just because the propaganda or the stories in the press that come out of it. 
I wonder in the piece if there will be a different solution than the ones that have been done so far. And maybe what if the whole territory, because Palestinians and Jewish population have both been in constant exile all the time. So one after a period and the other one before a certain period. But I wonder if that place could become a sanctuary for immigrants of the world. People have been expelled from everywhere. And instead of becoming something specific to one group or the other, maybe being super generous and say, well, this is the place for immigrants, for people who are not received anywhere else. At the end of Sunday, when we've had five constant days of the reading of Hannah Arendt's work, what do you hope to have happened by that point, if you like? I think at this point, it's very different. In Cuba, people didn't know the text, so it was very important to read it and to analyse it, but read it so people can hear it. But here, everybody knows Hannah Arendt, is studying schools and so on, so it's not that important the reading, I think, is more important the comments based on the text. Meaning, how can we use this text to understand today the, the present? How can we use the text to understand what is happening today more than the text itself? And even if the text is old and has been revisited, some people have added and reviewed it, I think the essence of the book is very, very useful still. We're talking actually in a couple of days after Ai Weiwei has just done an interview in which he's made some really interesting comments in relation to censorship in the West. You've just commented on Italy, I know, and on Instagram you made a point about Italy, for instance, and Giorgio Maloney's government and the aspects of totalitarianism that seem to be appearing in Italy. That government is putting people in place in arts institutions and so on. Ai Weiwei said that he thinks that censorship in the West is exactly the same as that in Mao's China. Do you think it's that bad or do you think it's heading in that direction? Where do you feel it is? I think it's worse. And I'll tell you why. Because the censorship in China was condemned by the world. Because there were economic forces, ideological forces that were happy to condemn those and highlight those censorship. I think in the West, the censorship is worst because people are living in a fantasy land where democracy is a given and it's their right. And they don't understand, and they don't understand, they don't want to see it, they justify censorship. And they use the same mechanism. And in that sense, I understand where Iowa is coming from. They use the same mechanism, blaming the person instead of looking at the system that generated the censorship. Character assassination instead of having a collective conversation of what brought them to take that decision. And also the obliteration of what is happening. I mean, a huge group of people pretending nothing is happening or I don't care. So I think it's worse because in a totalitarian system like China, Cuba, the USSR, uh, probably now the Putin version of that, they enter all the aspects of your life so you cannot escape the feeling and the knowledge of those censorship. Whether in places where democracy has been taken as a way to feel superior to other countries, they don't want to challenge that and they don't want to accept what they're doing. And this is more dangerous because if you don't know how to name something, you can fight it. 
Tanya, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Tanya Bruguera, where your ideas become civic actions, 100 hours reading the origins of totalitarianism, is at the Hamburger Bahnhof in Berlin until 11pm on Sunday the 11th of February. You can hear a discussion about Hannah Arendt's legacy and her influence on artists in our episode from the 15th of January 2021. Coming up, Frank Auerbach's charcoal drawings at the Courtauld and a 16th century mogul masterpiece from the collection of Howard Hodgkin at the Met. That's after this week's news bulletin. A painting by the Beatles sold for $1.7 million with fees at Christie's in New York on the 1st of February, easily beating its estimate of $400,000 to $600,000. The work, Images of a Woman from 1966, was consigned to Christie's annual exceptional sale, an event held in New York, London and Paris that includes rare masterpieces with important provenances, the auction house says. The identity of the buyer is undisclosed. The work was painted in July 1966 when the group were on tour in Japan. They ended up locked down in the presidential suite of the Tokyo Hilton at the request of local authorities who were concerned about their safety. According to a lot essay published by Christie's, the Beatles received visitors, many of whom came bearing gifts, including a top-quality set of art materials. Robert Whittaker, the tour photographer, captured the process in a series of photographs. A Roman oak bed on which a dead person may have been carried to a grave now lying six metres below the surface of modern London has been excavated along with a wealth of well-preserved finds spanning many centuries by archaeologists working in advance of an office development at Hoban Viaduct. The timber has been preserved by the waterlogged soil around the Lost River Fleet. Although the dead are commonly depicted as lying on beds in Roman funerary sculpture, real beds used in burials are very rare finds and this is the first complete example ever found in Britain. A century after Otto Dix's First World War painting, The Trench from 1923, provoked an outcry when it was displayed at the Prussian Academy of Arts in Berlin. The institution's successor, the German Academy of Arts, is opening to the public the inventory that Dix compiled of his work. The Academy is not able to show The Trench, one of the most vivid depictions of the horrors of war, which has been missing and feared destroyed since the Second World War. But it can display a black and white photograph because Dix made meticulous records of his works. The photograph was stuck on the back of an index card, just one of 4,000 relating to his works. Also in the archive, around 300 letters to the artist and even his paint box containing all his equipment, which is on show at the Academy. Dix's estate was entrusted to the institution by the Otto Dix Foundation, created by the artist's widow Martha Dix. The Academy held a reading of letters and documents from the archive this week to mark both the opening of the archive and the centennial of the exhibition of the trench in 1924. To read these stories and much more, visit the website or the app. Now, during his early years as an artist in post-war London, Frank Auerbach embarked on a series of monumental portraits using charcoal. Long viewed as landmarks in this formative stage in his career, 17 of these works, made between 1956 and 1962, are now on view at the Courtauld in London, alongside six paintings of the same sitters from that period. I went to the Courtauld to take a tour of the exhibition with its curator, Barnaby Wright. Barnaby, we're in the first room of two in this exhibition, filled with the charcoal drawings. Can you give us a sense of where Frank Auerbach was in his life at this point when he began making these drawings? 
So when he really began making the drawings that we have in the show, which start really with the works he made in 1956, he was just finishing at art school and really beginning his career as an artist. He was about 25 years old and he'd made up his mind that he wanted to produce some really significant works of art. And so he has said that he didn't want to sort of tinker around, he didn't want to just make sketches, he wanted to produce some really monumental mental and powerful works and that's what he set about doing. There's that magnificent quote by him about stonking coherent independent works of art that you know like he referred to them he wanted them to be monsters it's kind of an extraordinary ambition for an artist really. Absolutely and he had had this amazing experience of working on a painting of Stella West who he was in a relationship with when suddenly after weeks of tinkering with it and, and working on it months of doing that he reworked the whole thing top to bottom and the picture just came to life, as it were, and he realised that that was the way he was going to have to work. That's how he was going to create independent pictures. And were the charcoal drawings absolutely happening at the same time as the paintings? Did he divide his time between drawing and painting? How did he work in that time? Yeah, so really his first experience of working in charcoal on the scale of this charcoal drawings, which is an imperial size sheet, was actually when he was studying with David Bomberg at the Borough Polytechnic in London. And Bomberg's life classes were really inspirational for Auerbach. And Bomberg encouraged his students to work in charcoal on a large scale and really pursue the image and pursue the drawing beyond just mere formula or surface appearance to get at something at a deeper level. So he already had that experience when he turned to making these large charcoal drawings. He started by making some paintings of Stella West and then he realised that to carry on working at the intensity that he was, the paint, he just couldn't afford forward paint in that quantity that he was using it and he realised that taking up charcoal again was a way that he could continue his process and from then he would make charcoal drawings and once some of those were finished he'd turn to making a painting and intersperse that way of working which has actually been his practice ever since right up to the present day. But they are very much independent works of art it's important to stress that isn't it that he didn't think of them as somehow secondary to the paintings. Definitely not Usually at that time in the post-war period, he really felt that these drawings that he was making stood up for themselves and had equal status to his paintings. And indeed, we begin the exhibition by showing a painting of Stella West and a drawing next to one another, which very much emphatically make that point that these are equivalent to, to each other. And indeed, he, from very early years, exhibited the drawings as standalone works. So that was there from the beginning. One of the lovely things about seeing the painting and the drawing right next to each other is, of course, the fact that the, the compositions relate to one another, but also the physicality is there. And this is the amazing thing, I think, about charcoal drawings by Auerbach, is that for most people, a charcoal drawing is about image. But for him, it's so much about the touch and the the physicality of the work, as well as image, right? I think he takes the use of charcoal to a very different level than one normally associates it with. I mean, historically, it's associated as being a preparatory medium, something that you could try out ideas, rub them out and try again, or as a 
teaching medium where you can sketch in a live room like with Bomberg and, and rework the image. Auerbach uses it as a, a medium that you can rework and he reworks it time and time again, but adding up to something that has real presence and weight and physicality to it. So he sort of takes that medium beyond what one might imagine it possible to do. And it's incredibly hard one, isn't it? So let's move bit closer to this drawing of uh, Stella West. It's, they're always called Head of EOW, who, that, that's Stella West what we're talking about. Just at the bottom left of this sheet, you see August, September 1956, a drawing made over two months. That tells you the sort of intensity of the work, doesn't it? Absolutely. So these drawings that he made of Stella West were made in her house in the Earl's Court Road, in her bedroom. She would sit on a chair. He would kneel on the floor with his drawing board propped up on an old chair and make these drawings in the evening stretching into the night lit by an electric light bulb and he would make them at least three evenings a week he'd be working on them so that two-month period is numerous sittings over hours and hours and dissatisfied after each sitting and before the next sitting he would erase the whole drawing that he had made and then work again over the blurred ghost of what had gone before and work the drawing incredibly hard so that in fact very often the paper would break and he would be forced to patch it up and carry on again and that very rough sort of energetic way of working was exacerbated by the fact that he was working in charcoal but equally important is his work with the eraser because all the whites and lights and dramatic contrasts of light and dark are achieved by cutting through the charcoal with what was actually a typewriter rubber that he used a very hard rubber so these things went through a very sort of hard one process and the paper would actually sort of disintegrate effectively that's why you have these patchings up right exactly yeah the patches are in no way an affectation or a collaging element they were a practical way of allowing him to carry on working. And he said that he found that, you know, as he worked them and patched them, they became more interesting as objects and he would just simply carry on until he could get the image that he wanted. There's a really lovely analogy in your essay, which is about actors, that he was particularly interested in actors on the stage in London in that period. And that you refer to the drawing process almost like rehearsals and performance in a way. I think given Auerbach's interest in acting, and indeed he acted a little bit himself when he first came to London, uh, and his admiration for great actors, that analogy is quite apt, that these are a whole series of rehearsals until, and of course he doesn't know when the final performance will be, but until one day when that rehearsal leads to an image that he thinks can stand up for itself. So there's this wonderful kind of idea of time contained within these works in the sense that yes it's months work often but the actual final drawing the kind of final image that dominates that drawing could be made in a matter of hours yes exactly and I think that's one of the things that gives them their power and why one's so sort of captivated by them you feel this long duration you can see the marks like a sort of palimpsest of erased and built up marks but at the same time they have this spontaneity of all coming together 
uh, somewhat miraculously on that last sort of day, which might have been an hour or two hours of, of drawing. Because to stress, he doesn't tinker with these works. He doesn't change the position of a eyebrow or, a, or the nose. If something is wrong with the drawing, the whole drawing is destroyed or rubbed away and started again. It's extraordinary. Now, you mentioned he's a young man at this point and that his means are limited. And one of the ways in which he got round that was by drawing another artist, his close friend at the time, Leon Kossov, who in many ways is seen as a very parallel figure to Auerbach and both used incredibly thick paint. Both of them were, were heavily committed to drawing as a, as a practice. There is a wonderful sequence of drawings of Kossov on the wall opposite us now. So tell us about those. Well, I was very pleased that we were able to borrow all three of the large charcoal heads that he made of Kossoff. And Kossoff, like Auerbach, was hungry for a model that he could work from at great length. And so they had an arrangement when they would spend days on end together, taking it in turns to be artist and model, and they would have a, an hour or two-hour session and then switch, turn and turn about, going on all day like that, enabling each other to sort of progress their art in that way. And what Auerbach ended up producing were these three extraordinary drawings of Kossoff looking down, looking reflective, but his interest, Auerbach's interest in the human head, in Kossoff's head, leads them to be slightly expanded, so you have these large, almost sort of planetary forms. They are quite sort of intense and remarkable. And I think for Auerbach, he felt that the human head was really for any artist, he would say, the greatest and grandest subject anyone could take on, and that's what fascinated him about it. One of the things about that, as you say, these sort of planetary forms, is that, of course, so often Auerbach is associated with realism, with a kind of intense engagement with something in front of him which he is attempting to get down onto a surface. But one of the things that is also true about Auerbach is that these are in no way mimetic. They are extremely connected to feeling, and I would say imagination too. Tell us, do you think he's a realist? Where does the imagination come in? I think it depends what one means by realist, but no, in broad strokes, I would say that Auerbach is interested in depicting and observing what is in front of him, but as a spur to his own creativity. But his imagination is never allowed to run away with itself to the extent that it's totally divorced from what's in front of him. It's this constant push and pull between what's observed and what's felt as he draws his figure. And given that these are iterations that may be 30, 40 sittings or more, one feels in these drawings that he has worked through and tried out every sort of flicker of light on the face, every twitch, every muscle, every part of the form before he arrives at the final image. So it's the sum of all of that, I think, that goes into these works. So we feel that they're a type of portraiture, but one that's much sort of deeper than we often associate with a more superficial likeness. Absolutely. And, and of course, one of the kind of landmark figures for him at this time, and actually even now and right the way through his career, has been Rembrandt. And you do feel Rembrandt's presence in these, don't you? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, so his life at this point, Auerbach's life in the 50s in London, was one of drawing and painting the building sites of London, the bomb sites as they grew into building sites. It was then going into the National Gallery and spending long hours looking at the works in the National Gallery, and it was coming back to the studio or to Stella West's house and making these very intense 
heads, portrait heads, and Rembrandt was a major figure in all of that. And I think when you come and see these works, you realise how invested they are in that tradition of dramatic shifts of light and dark, of what's called uh, chiaroscuro, and Rembrandt and his famed use of that sort of internal luminosity and glow of light is something very much, I think, that Auerbach is engaging with in these works. Absolutely, and also, of course, self-portraiture. We've got a marvellous example of Auerbach's self-portrait over there, and you do actually notice that he's a young man. You know, he, he looks like he might be in his 20s in that picture. He, he does in that we have two self-portraits in the exhibition. The one in the first room, yes, I think that's absolutely right. The second one in the larger room of the show, I think he feels like an older man. So, I mean, I think he feels like he has the sort of weight of much more experience on his shoulders in those. The self-portraits are really rare, I mean, really unusual in his work. He makes just two self-portraits at this time in the 50s and then one other in the mid-60s in oil and then after that makes no more self-portraits for the next 65 years or something until he's a much older man and his ageing face starts to interest him and he uh, makes a whole series of self-portraits, which he's doing to this day. Okay, well, let's go through into the next room in which that later self-portrait is. As you say, there is a sense of the weight of the world in this picture. It's, it's one of the most scarred images, if you like. To what extent was he reflecting on his personal circumstances in this period? To what extent was he grappling with what seems like a quite intense life with partners and so on? I think that the way that Auerbach works is that he is constantly in the studio in pursuit of a credible, coherent image that surprises him, that feels like it has a life of its own to the extent that he can do no more to the image. And he pours everything into trying to achieve that. So all of his feelings and emotions are within him as he works on these sorts of drawings. But I don't think anything that he would verbalise or be self-conscious of is part of the process. I think it's, it's a much more subtle process than that, that things seep in through the pores and go into his process of uh, pursuing relentlessly these uh, images that he feels have their own independence in the world. When we come into this second room, one's aware that the sitters are expanding in number. Is the work changing? I think the interesting thing about bringing them all together is that you do see this development in the way he works. I actually think that the self-portraits that he makes, the two that he makes in 1958, are important in that change. Because they're self-portraits, he's obviously looking at himself in the mirror. He's forced, in a sense, to stand back a little bit. More of his body is in the work than appears in other figures that are earlier than this. And I think that does sort of lead to a change in his depiction of the other sitters that come into his studio at that time and indeed in relation to the slightly later works he makes of Stella West and in the larger room we have the last four drawings that he made of Stella West. He made ten of her in total is that right? That's right, he said that he had from the get-go from 1956 decided he was going to make ten major drawings of her and he did end up making ten over a period that stretched from 1956 to 1960. He was always quite worried that she might get 
get fed up of all the mess of the charcoal. And apparently, you know, clouds of it were in the bedroom and settling all over him, her, the bed and everything else. But he managed, and she endured as a model, and he managed to produce the ten. And the last four are very different from the earlier works in that the poses are more varied. You feel that the figure sits in the space of the drawing in a more dynamic way. And in one case, a drawing that actually hasn't been seen very much before, it's almost all erased. So many of the marks are made with the eraser rather than the charcoal itself. One of the interesting things that one notes when looking at four of them together like this is this curious relationship that the drawings have with scale. It's a factor, I think, which is so intriguing about Auerbach's work generally in the sense that one expects heads that are slightly larger than reality often to be associated with photography but he doesn't use photography right it's absolutely about sitting in front of the sitter yeah he doesn't use photography at all and he will only work on a drawing or indeed a painting when the sitter is there in front of him so that's absolutely the case I think working on these imperial size sheets allows him if he wants to make a head bigger than life size or about life size and contained within the sheet and I think that's really important about them, your relationship to them and to the scale of them that he chooses, that doesn't come across, of course, in reproduction. It's only when you're in front of the actual works that you really feel that power coming across through scale. Absolutely. He wanted to avoid them looking glancing, didn't he? And it's it's about that sort of intensity of engagement he has with his sitter. He wants us to somehow share in that with him, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's interesting that his depiction of the various sitters that he has modelled for him in the 1950s and I mean there's really only a small handful of them but they all look away or glance down they don't catch your eye directly that in the longer history of portraiture that mode is to do with the idea of reflection and introspection and I think he enjoins us in that by these figures not actually sort of catching our eye directly and and we share in that process to some degree of what it's like when you just look at somebody for an extended period of time. And I think, you know, we can all perhaps relate to that to some degree that the familiar becomes strange when we look at it for long enough. And so these drawings, I think, have that quality of being very familiar in one sense and of this world and flesh and blood, but also strange and slightly otherworldly to some degree. And I think it's that relationship between the familiar and the strange that is really at the heart of the power of some of these drawings. And I think one of the strange aspects that develops through the work is this use of colour and very, very sort of delicate use of colour in places. And especially interesting to me is the fact that the colour isn't located within, say, a fabric or within the flesh tones. It seems to be an independent factor within the drawing. Can you say more about how he uses it? And has he ever explained what he was trying to do with it? It's very noticeable in several of the slightly later drawings in this exhibition where unexpectedly you find these flashes of colour. There's one drawing of somebody called Helen Gillespie who was a friend of Stella West's who sat for Auerbach. And it's clear that what's happened is that after months of work on the drawing, months of creation and destruction of drawing and erasure, on that very last day, he summoned up the courage to just grab a piece of pinkish red chalk, which he darts around the picture, and it absolutely electrifies it. The whole picture comes to life. But that is quite a sort of do-or-die thing to achieve, because if 
if it had gone wrong, then the whole drawing would have been ruined all over again and, and rather hard to come back from. At the time, in fact, in a published statement, he talks about building up the courage to make an improvisation only at the sort of end or coming towards what proves to be the end of the process. And there's a sense in which he's got to know the drawing and the subject so well that he's able to improvise without it feeling in any way random or affected. They still feel part of contributing to the structure of the drawing. Absolutely. And then the end of this sequence, if you like, is a rather neat kind of segue into painting, isn't it? So it's a charcoal drawing, but he begins applying paint to it, and then after this goes on a prolonged period of painting. Yeah, so we were very keen in the exhibition to include a small group of very carefully chosen paintings that relate to the drawings and bring out that crucial dialogue for Auerbach between painting and drawing. The charcoal drawings, I think, during this period feed into the way he then goes on to paint. So I think he's developments that happen in charcoal then find their way into paint and he draws in paint in really interesting ways. And we have, as you say, one of those works in the exhibition which is a true hybrid between drawing and painting in that he'd spent months working in charcoal and then decided to finish it in oil. So it it is now finished as an oil on paper. It's a portrait of his older cousin, Gerda Boehm, who sat for him from 1960 onwards and would go on to sit for him for 20 more years. Tell us about how these works sit within the kind of mood of post-war London and also the, just the general mood in European art at that time in relation to the events of the Second World War and the Holocaust. I mean, is it too much to read into the biography of Auerbach in the sense that, you know, his parents died in the Holocaust? He was in Britain only because his parents knew what was coming, if you like, and made sure he had left Germany. I think it's undeniable that when you see these charcoal drawings, one really feels the tenor of the post-war years. The way that Auerbach's practice developed, what we've talked about, this process of creation and destruction, which is just inherent to the way that he works, has that obvious read across to the way that the city was being rebuilt after the destruction of war and the way that people were rebuilding their lives after the war. And he's talked about how there was a bit of a sense among all the people that he met and himself that they were survivors scurrying around a ruined city and that life was pretty remarkable that sense that actually just to be alive was remarkable. And I think that deep sense of humanity really is what feeds into these drawings, and it's through that that they become such important post-war works. Barnaby, thank you so much. Thank you. Frank Auerbach, The Charcoal Heads, is at the Courtauld in London until the 27th of May. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The British artist Howard Hodgkin formed a remarkable collection of Indian paintings and drawings over six decades before his death in 2017. It included works from the Mughal, Dakani, Rajput and Pahari courts dating from the 16th to the 19th centuries, more than 120 of which are now on view in an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Indian Skies, the Howard Hodgkin collection of Indian court painting, includes many works that the Met recently acquired alongside loans from the Howard Hodgkin 
Pushkin Indian Collection Trust. One of the works now in the Met's collection is Mihirdukt aims her arrow at the ring, a painting on cloth from the Mughal period, probably made in around 1570 by the painters Basawan and Jagan. It was one of the first major pieces of Indian art acquired by Hodgkin, reflecting an immediate confidence in his collecting. Naveena Najat Haidar is the curator in charge of the Department of Islamic Art at the Met and the co-curator of the show, and she told us more about this luminous masterpiece and Hodgkin's particular eye for the art of South Asia. Naveena, how would you characterise Howard Hodgkin's collection of Indian and related art? It's a very personal take. It's Howard Hodgkin's vision of Indian art, his response to Indian painting. It's not a collection that follows the rules of art history or the parameters of the kind of way people generally approach these things in that he is attracted to whatever he's attracted to. And there's a certain freedom in the way he approaches the material. So you get a kind of personal take as well as a kind of bold and exciting almost point of view into this material. Yeah and does that make it all the more challenging as a curator to gather this material, catalogue it, place it in a way? Yes in some ways but I mean you know you want to get the balance right between presenting the artist's inspired take on Indian painting as well as doing the art historical thing and framing these works in a context that is faithful to history and faithful to region and chronology and to art history to help viewers understand them and to also demonstrate that even though Hodgkin was a great individual rule breaker and sort of had a personal passion that guided him, he was also very educated in all the schools of art history, in all the traditions of art. So it's not as though he's completely outside that. He's sort of integrated in his own way with the kind of formal traditions of understanding and approaching painted works from the courts of South Asia. One of the interesting things, of course, is that you could categorically say that he was not interested in Indian miniatures. A lot of the paintings are actually very large for their period, right? Yes, I think he set out to show that Indian painting breathes large and isn't necessarily small, although there are some very tiny and exquisitely detailed, tiny, tiny things in the collection too. And some of the finest techniques that you see are very miniaturized. But yes, he had a feeling for scale. So there's a surprisingly large, physically large kind of component to the whole collection. Right. And as you said, that sort of sense in which he didn't buy his art according to schools and so on. He said he just wanted great art. He wanted the best art that he could find. And so that's a very interesting way of approaching it. Isn't it? And sometimes that would mean a fragment as opposed to a whole work. Yes, definitely. He didn't use a lot of words when people, I'm, I'm told, and also from what he writes, when people say, well, what attracts you to this art? What He would just say, just look, just look at it. Yeah. So he sort of had this kind of almost deceptively simple commanding way to force you to engage as he had, which is just to look and let your eyes guide you and see where they take you. So there is that side to him. And, you know, you'll see that in the essay that he writes, he talks about this a little bit in the in the catalogue that was done for the Ashmolean. Yeah. And he talks very interestingly about the whole process of collecting, doesn't he? And I mean, it, it doesn't sound like, of course, it must have given him pleasure, but he doesn't sound like he enjoyed a lot of it because a new work would come onto the market or he would find a new work and he had to have it. Mm-hmm. This idea of the, the best being the enemy of the good and so on. 
That's true. We feel the same agony now as curators, having acquired <laughs> this magnificent collection. Now something else has come on the market. And, you know, there's, the passion never ends. Each thing stokes the next thing. So, yes, the Hodgkin collection may end up being the step rather than the climax because there's no climax in this world. You know, it just keeps going. Absolutely. Now, one of the interesting things about his collection is that it sort of ends in the period when particularly the British influence and certainly European influence more widely becomes much more prevalent. Is that right? So that effectively in the 19th century, he's never really interested in that period. He's only interested in the period before that point. Well, that's what we see. And I think he talks about that a little bit in his writing. He doesn't regard sort of departure into completely new styles of expression, botanical studies, large scale things, perspectival views of space, all the techniques and all the subject matter that comes in through new British patronage in India. I don't think he regarded that as being, you know, truly an Indian eye. And he, he was very faithful to Indian way of, of looking at space and portraiture and so on. And he seems to have lost interest when the style changed. Having said that, there's one or two elements in his collection that do show that sort of world of Indian painting transitioning into something that's more a bit like European painting in some ways. So there are a few touches of that, but not substantial in the collection. Right. Now, the work we're going to talk about is from the Mughal period. Can you say something about that period in terms of art patronage, in terms of the kind of styles of art in that period? So the Mughal dynasty, the word Mughal is a corruption of the word Mongol. This is a very old dynasty that's made its way across Asia in a very loose kind of family and dynastic tradition from as early as the you know 13th century or before that. But in the 13th century, the Mongols swept across Asia and displaced the caliph, who was the caliph of the Muslim world. They came to Iran and Central Asia as conquerors and eventually one branch of them became Islamicized and became the kind of great patrons of the identity change and the patronage changed and and they sort of set into motion a kind of development in the book arts that uh, really had a tremendous influence from the 15th century onwards on later dynasties, the Mughals, the Safavids, the Ottomans, and they themselves as a family now are known in the 15th century as the Timurids. The Timurids, um, who had descended from Amir Demur, one of the kind of Mongol ancestors, his descendant Babur was expelled from Central Asia and made his way to India in the 16th century and by 1526 had established himself in northern India and effectively laid the foundations for the Mughal dynasty in India. From that point onwards, you had a sort of development in the whole wider South Asian region as this Mongol-Mughal tradition took root, displacing the earlier sultans who had ruled and, you know, sort of being very successful in bringing together huge amounts of territory and created a, an extraordinary, exciting world, at least that's the way we see it artistically, of great exchange, of great accomplishment, and of many interesting things happening in the visual arts. They were passionate about book painting, about manuscript illustration, about architecture, about the decorative arts, almost everything, and they've left a huge, important legacy for the world. So one of the most important foundational projects as far as painting was concerned was the illustration of a text known as the Hamza Nama, or the Adventures of Amir Hamza, who was an uncle of the Prophet Muhammad, whose early adventures form the kind of, you know, main text of this book. When I say book, it's not really a book as, as we know it today. It's a very large scale manuscript painting project on cloth, 
which originally had 1,400 paintings, of which only 10% survive. And Hodgkin has three such works in the collection. And the one we're going to talk about is one of the three. I wish I could have shown you all three because each <laughs> one each one represents a different dimension of early Mughal painting in about 1570. You know, but the Hamza Nama page that we're going to look at is probably the most Persianate in its character. Absolutely. It's, it's such an extraordinary and beautiful work. It's utterly enchanting, isn't it? But it's, it's full of incident too. And on the one hand, there's this atmosphere of calm, but it's so full of incident and animation. That's right. But it's set in a garden and it's a very Persianate garden. It offers you a bird's eye view into this garden. And one of the reasons you have this kind of Persianate influence is because in this period under Akbar and his father, Jahangi Humayu, you have the introduction of two Persian artists from Iran who came to the Mughal court and worked with local artists to create what is the Mughal school of painting, the Mughal style of painting. Mm -hmm. And you have all these elements mixing together, the Persianate, the Indic, and a little bit of Europe every now and then. In this one, as I said, it's very much more Persian. And so it offers you this bird's eye view into almost a Persianate walled garden with the most delightful little plants and blossoms and trees scattered through the garden. And you're looking into this garden where you have an architectural pavilion on one side and other elements on the other side. And in the architectural pavilion is this striking and dynamic figure of Meher Docht, who's a feminine heroine in the story, shooting as she's an archeress. And she aims her bow towards a golden bird that's at the top of a tower. And she's doing this to demonstrate her prowess in archery and in order to put off the useless suitors who want to marry her. <laughs> but she says she they have to meet her level of skill. So you see a couple of the suitors in the pictures are slinking off, looking very ashamed of themselves and <laughs> totally outshone by this beautiful, competent archeress. So yes, it's a kind of exciting picture for the strong feminine image, for the dynamism of the pose. And it's a delightful combination of Persia meets India because you have the kind of charm of the Persian garden and the dream of the Persian garden expressed, as well as this kind of energy and vitality of the Indian setting and with the kinds of plants that you see, the dynamic feminine figure that you see, and the sense of liveliness and action. So yes, it's very Hamza Nama in that many folios of the Hamza Nama have this spirit. And this one in particular has both the spirit and the sweetness that comes out in the best of the Hamza Nama pages. And of course, one of the most striking aspects, which very much relates to Howard Hodgkin's own works, is colour. And it makes me think very much of one of Hodgkin's great heroes was Matisse. And Matisse referred to the mineral hues of Persian miniatures. And one really feels this extraordinary breadth of colour, but also a kind of depth in the beauty of the colour. It's, it's, it's an utterly stunning chromatic display, this work, isn't it? We have a section in the exhibition which explores a little bit of the colour relationship between Hodgkin's own work and the things that he collected, but not in a direct way, in a rather indirect way. Mm. But there's no doubt that Indian painting, Persian painting and Hodgkin too were deeply moved by colour, worked in the language of colour. I think where they really maybe had a meeting point in the use of colour was not just in the literal kind of use of colour, but in the way colour expresses and distills memory and emotion and action and even narrative. You can read stories and you can read characters and mood and things in the way you work with colour. And, and I think we see that going across the board in that way. 
And there's also this tremendously sophisticated idea of space which emerges through the painting. Of course, you have the interior and the exterior and the way that it's constructed is remarkable, isn't it? Exactly. And um, the inside-outside effect is quite something, yeah. I wanted to ask about how this would have been used, because as you say, it's one of 1,400 pieces of cloth that formed part of a, of a wider project, of a wider publication, as it were. But would it have been very much for private encounters? Would it have been displayed in any way? So it's very interesting. The Hamzanama raises all these questions about its use and about the way it was understood and appreciated by the Emperor Akbar for whom it was made. So I had mentioned Babur as the founding figure of the Mughal dynasty, but the greatest figure was Akbar, who ruled in the 16th century. Mm -hmm. And he really developed and grew the empire and was a brilliant figure with lots of interest in art and architecture and was very dynamic. And strangely, according to his biographer, Abul Fazl, he was unable to read. And there's actually been an article written about him possibly being even dyslexic. That was a diagnosis made 400 years after he passed on. (laughs) So we we don't know how to read it. But it's actually quite a brilliant and riveting article too, because it brings up the question of why couldn't he read? Was it his reading and the literary arts and, and the art of writing were fundamental to the education of princes at this time? This was a great moment for that. It was a great moment for literary culture. So we don't really understand why Akbar could not read. It could also have been a kind of attribute because this has been interpreted by scholars in different ways. But one of the theories is that the Prophet Muhammad was supposed to be not unable to read or not literate in that way. Mm. And so sometimes the attribute of the prophet is accorded to other people in history as a kind of compliment. Or So there, there are all these existing theories. Anyway, coming to the Hamza Nama, the text exists on the back of the large folios, right? And one of the complications is that it's not the case that the text on the back of the folio matches the picture in the front because there was been a sequence of text pages and folios and the text might have been on another folio, the one that describes the picture. So there was a theory that these were bardic and that somebody would hold up the large painting and then read the text off the back while the emperor was looking at the front of it. But that doesn't work if you think about the fact that the text may not have exactly matched the picture on the front. So there's still a lot of mysteries about how this would have been used. What Abul Fazl tells us is that although Akbar could not read himself, he enjoyed being read too, and he often marked the page that the book stopped at with a bookmark or with a mark that he would put in to sort of show his appreciation. So the mystery lingers. There's a wonderful study of the Hamza Nama done by John Seiler. There was a major exhibition actually at the Brooklyn Museum about 20 years ago, and there's a great catalogue which talks about different ways of understanding how the text and the image might have worked together. And then there are other scholars who have come up with other thoughts. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for telling us about this extraordinary painting. Thank you. Oh, my my pleasure. Thank you so much. Indian Skies, the Howard Hodgkin collection of Indian court painting, is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York until the 9th of June. And you can hear my interview with Anthony Peaty, Hodgkin's partner for the last few decades of his life, on the episode of this podcast from the 25th of May 2018. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. 
The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Alexander Morrison and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Tanya, Barnaby and Navina. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now.